Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you've probably heard a little bit about 5G technology as of late. Back in January 2019, some of the buzz around 5G was all about how computer manufacturers are starting to build in 5G technology into the next generation of smartphones and laptops and other devices. And both AT&T and Verizon had marketing pushes already that mention 5G in recent products and services, despite the fact that these technologies aren't actually fully 5G, but we'll get to that. And then you had the president of the United States saying that the U.S. companies should really be rolling out 5G technology faster and that we should already be looking into 6G, which isn't even a thing. Heck, 5G isn't really a thing yet, at least not practically. Wireless technology can be confusing on a good day, so I figured it's high time I tackled this subject. So what the heck is 5G and why does it matter? I'm going to try and cover a bit about how 5G works as well, but it gets super complicated, so I'm going to save that for the end. And I'm not going to get too technical because, uh, one, it would require eight episodes, and two, I don't fully understand all the ins and outs myself, so just being fully transparent there. Anyway, let's get the relatively easy part out of the way first. 5G refers to the fifth generation of wireless standards. Now, that by itself sounds pretty straightforward, but in reality, things get really messy when you start looking into details. While each G refers to a different generation, there were different standards within each generation, making it a bit more complicated, and generations would overlap one another. While we would be rolling out 4G, you still had companies investing and improving 3G. So this isn't very clear cut. It's not like you can just look at one span of years and say, this represents 2G, and then the next span, this represents 3G. It's a little more wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey than that. But this is also easier to think about if I use an analogy, something that we're all familiar with. So I'm going to talk about computers. I'm going to arbitrarily divide up personal computers into different generations for the purposes of this example, but please keep in mind, this is really just to illustrate a point, and I'm going to be skipping over a lot of stuff. So I am going to say that in the first generation of mainstream personal computers, once you get out of the hobbyist level, we have the Apple II computers and the IBM PC computers. Now, I'm ignoring all the other models out there, like the Commodore 64, really in ju just to simplify things. So we're talking about Apple and IBM computers. So these two types of computers were in the first generation, but they each operated on their own chipsets and operating systems. So they were not compatible with each other. They're both first generation, but they're both proprietary in their own approach. In the second generation... We then have the Macintosh computer and the IBM clone computers. Now, these computers were more advanced than their predecessors, but still were incompatible with each other. Then in the third generation, you have Mac computers, so no longer just Macintosh, now we call them Macs, and all the different Windows-based machines. So each generation had more than one standard in it, and the same can be said for wireless technologies. 
I've covered the different generations of wireless tech in other episodes, but I'm going to give a Cliff's Notes version of what it was all about on this episode. So we could say that each generation is marked by two major features. First, that each generation improved upon the data transfer rates of its preceding generation. And second, that each generation changed the encoding methods for data, which not only enabled these improved data transfer rates, but also made each succeeding generation incompatible with the previous ones. Meaning that if you had an old cellular phone or device with cellular wireless capabilities, wouldn't be able to take advantage of these newer wireless communications technologies. If you had a 2G cell phone, you could not use the 3G cell phone network. Typically, newer devices would have some compatibility with older standards, usually because it takes time to roll out these new systems. So you want to have built-in backwards compatibility so that if you can't get access to the new network, you can at least still use the older network. This sometimes would even require the user to make the switch on uh, the actual device they were using to go to an older wireless uh, network. But even just saying that each generation is faster than the previous one isn't really accurate. I mentioned just a minute ago, these generations can overlap. So when each generation first emerged out of the development phase into the deployment phase, so it's becoming a real-world thing, it wasn't really capable of delivering its full potential right away. Nearly every generation saw improvements in data rates over time. And sometimes you're in a situation in which the network or your device can't manage the ideal transfer rates. So you've got a device that maybe runs on, let's say, the 3G network, and you've got a 3G network, but there could be other elements at play that mean you can't get the ideal speeds of the 3G network, even though you're using the proper technologies. I'll talk more about that in a second, too. Actually, we can cover it now. So I'm specifically thinking about situations like the one I would find myself in when I would attend CES a few years ago, maybe a decade ago. So CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, is heavily attended by people all using multiple devices that are tapping into the local mobile networks. So there are phones, there are tablets, there are computers. There's tons of interference. There's just, there's a lot of trying to connect to the network at CES. And it doesn't really matter which carrier you have. The fact that there are so many people there and so many devices, all the carriers are hit with requests to tap into the networks at the same time. So it tends to overtax those networks. And even if your phone indicates that you have a strong signal, like I can look at my phone and it says, oh, I've got full bars of signal. I can easily connect to the network. You would end up with a terrible data transfer rate where you couldn't even send a text message out. There were times when I would switch my phone to an older wireless standard and pop onto a less congested network even though the top data transfer rate of the older generation was less impressive than the current generation, I would get better results due to the lack of traffic. So yeah, this gets really messy. It's not so clear cut. 
Now let's talk about the generations themselves. And keep in mind, like I said, these generations had a lot of overlap. Uh, Some regions like Asia would roll out new generations faster than other parts of the world like North America. So there's no hard and fast dates that we can use for this because the deployment of each generation took a long time and didn't start everywhere all at the same time. Now you could argue that there is a 0G generation of wireless communications before we even get to 1G. The 0G generation would include radio telephones. This is before there were cellular networks, before there were cell towers. So this is pure radio transmission. Uh, The following generations would move to cell tower technology, and there would be this new technology that would allow a handoff or a handshake from one cell tower to another to allow a call to transfer from one tower to another tower without interrupting the actual call. The first generation of wireless communication standards only carried voice signals. There was no data beyond voice. And it included a lot of different standards like AMPS or AMPS in North America and NMT in Eastern Europe or TACS, TACS, in the UK, and several more. Uh, And it was analog. That was the the analog generation of wireless communication standards. The second generation, or 2G, was able to carry not just voice, but data signals. This was the first digital way of carrying cell phone conversations. Also, this allowed for encryption. You could encrypt the signal. In the analog days, you could technically tap in and listen to people talking on wireless communications because it was unencrypted. That changed with 2G. So this is our switch from analog to digital cellular phones, and it also introduced us to the era of text messaging. That was suddenly possible with 2G. And the standards in this generation included GSM, CDMA, and TDMA. Then, depending upon whom you ask, We get a bit of a cheat. This happens in between lots of the different generations. So there's some people who say there's a generation 2.5G or enhanced 2G. This was not a total departure from the 2G standards and uh, methods of operation, but it allowed for better data transfer rates. So GPRS and EDGE would be considered 2.5G technologies, at least by some people. Other people say, no, you don't split out 2.5G. Those are all 2G standards. So it should all belong in the same family. And because no one really agrees with this, it makes matters even more confusing than they already were. Then we get to 3G that allowed enough data throughput for video signals to come through. I would argue the 3G advances are what allowed truly useful applications of smartphone technology. Although, interestingly, some companies like Apple took their time actually embracing 3G. Standards included UTMS, CDMA 2000, HSPDA, and EVDO. And like 2G, some people split that generation out to be 3 and 3.5, or even 3, 3.5, and 3.75G. The real purpose of that, again, is to single out advances that allowed for better data transfer rates. By the end of the 3G development cycle, some standards could support data transfer rates of a few megabits per second, whereas the 2G technologies maxed out at a couple of hundred kilobits per second. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about what these data transfer rates mean in a second so that we get a better understanding of it, but essentially it meant that you could send more information in the same amount of time as older devices could do. Right now, 
the latest tech we can use belongs to 4G, or you could argue 4.5 if you wanted to. This is the uh, enhanced protocol. The standards would be WiMAX and Long-Term Evolution, or LTE. Now, these days, you'd be more likely to talk about LTE Advanced. To be a 4G system, it first has to meet requirements that were established in the International Mobile Telecommunications Advanced Set of Standards. The International Telecommunication Union is a department in the United Nations, and it's responsible for creating those standards. This technology is still scaling up today, with data transfer rates in the hundreds of megabits per second in some of the implementations. Some of them are even hitting up to a gigabit per second, at least in theory. Now, again, that doesn't mean you're actually going to see data transfer rates at that level, even if you have a compatible device and service. But in general, if you do have those things, you'll be able to download or stream content more effectively than those of us who do not have access to those services and products. So what does this all mean for us? Well, it mostly boils down to two really big things per generation. Where do our phones work? And how much data can we access per given unit of time? So back during the 2G days, the United States was split between using the GSM standard, which was also used in Europe and Asia, or the CDMA standard, which was primarily just used in the United States. There were a couple of other places that also used it, but U.S. was the primary uh, place where you would find CDMA technology. So if you happen to have service with AT&T or T-Mobile, you had a GSM phone, which at least had the potential to work on European networks. That wasn't a guarantee, by the way. You actually had to have a special band of uh, antenna and chip in your phone in order to be able to use European networks, even if you had a GSM phone. But at least in theory, it was compatible. If you were on Verizon or Sprint in those days, then that meant you were using a CDMA phone, which was not compatible with Europe's systems at all. So you would have to get a different phone if you wanted to travel to Europe and, and call somebody. Now, that's just one example of one case where you had uh, a standard that works in certain parts of the world and not in others. This is still true for a lot of different wireless communications technologies. All right, we've set the ground we're going to go into a little more detail about data transfer rates and talk about 5G in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break. More recent generations of wireless communications technologies generally provide better data transfer speeds, and we often refer to them as being faster, that the 4G network is faster than the 3G network. But really what we mean is that the more recent generations have a higher capacity to deliver information on our devices. Because ultimately, all this information is traveling at the speed of light, more or less. Well, less. You can't go more. So no transmission is really faster than any other. It's not like the signals of 2G traveled more slowly than the signals of 3G. They all travel at the same speed. It's just that the later... Uh, generations were able to carry more data in that same amount of speed. So let's go with another analogy. I love using analogies to explain this kind of stuff. And we're going to talk about cars. I think that makes it fairly clear. So in this analogy, let's say you've got a smart car and you've got a semi-truck. 
and they're both on the same stretch of road, and the road's speed limit is 30 miles per hour. And for the sake of this example, we're going to assume both drivers are following that speed limit, which I admit is pretty low, but they're both following it. So in the world of telecommunications, we don't have any choice but to follow the universal speed limit. You cannot go faster than light. But here we're just saying that the drivers will not go above the speed limit. So the smart car and the semi-truck are moving at the same speed. However, you can fit a whole lot more stuff inside that semi-truck than you could in the little smart car. So you can deliver a huge amount of material in one trip in the semi-truck. And the smart car would have to take lots of trips to deliver the same amount of stuff. So while both vehicles or protocols are going at the same speed, one can finish a given job faster than the other one because it can carry more. So in my description uh, of CES earlier, we could say that I actually jumped into a smart car because it could take advantage of a special smart car lane on the road and travel at the full blistering speed of 30 miles per hour. Meanwhile, the semi-truck was stuck in the normal traffic lane, and that one was getting backed up because there were just too many people trying to get on that same road, and it was making traffic slow down. But because I was in the less used older lane, I had switched from 3G to 2G, let's say, I could go pretty fast because there wasn't anyone in my way. That's one of the things that we talk about when we're looking at uh, relying upon earlier generations of wireless communications technologies. The official name for the 5G radio system is 5GNR. And as you may have guessed, NR stands for new radio. And this new radio standard will be incompatible with older standards. So if you had a pure 5G device, one that was only connected to 5G networks, the, the chipset, the antenna, all of it is just tuned to 5G. You would probably have a pretty lousy experience initially because carriers would still be building out their networks. You would have very spotty coverage. In fact, you might even live someplace where you'd have no coverage whatsoever because you don't live within range of a 5G uh, tower. You'd find that your device only works in a few locations with service, and for that reason manufacturers are more likely to roll out 5G phones, laptops, and other devices that also contain 4G technology in them to avoid that problem so that your device will rely on 4G networks unless a 5G network is available, in which case it'll ramp up. It'll switch on over to 5G. And otherwise, they'll, they'll lean very heavily on 4G in places where 5G is of limited availability or reliability. These types of networks, which continue to support these older standards while rolling out new ones, have a name. They're called NSA networks. Now, in this case, the NSA does not refer to the spy agency in the United States that's looking at all electronic communications. Instead, it means non-standalone, meaning the network must pair one wireless technology with at least one other wireless technology. Eventually, as these networks become more robust, they can sunset the older wireless communication standards and become standalone or SA networks. We're starting to see this happen right now. In fact, some companies have already shut down their 2G networks 
and sunset them. Those are no longer supported. Others are still supporting the 2G networks, but plan to shut them down in the near future. I believe T-Mobile has extended operations until 2020, but then is going to shut down its 2G network, for example. There are three main goals for 5G technology. One is to have even greater data transfer rates, and like previous generations, we'll likely see a range of data transfer rates roll out in various networks. The actual experience will depend upon lots of different factors, such as the design of the network, the actual device you're using, uh, the number of other devices that are on that network, the communications frequency that the network is relying upon and your device is relying upon, and so on. So it's really hard to give a solid number to what 5G speeds will mean. That being said, let's at least get some ballpark figures in here or else it's no use whatsoever. In February 2018 at the Mobile World Congress, Qualcomm released the results of some 5G simulation tests it had conducted in an effort to see what we might expect from 5G in the early, early days in areas like Frankfurt or in San Francisco, California. The simulation took into account cell tower locations that are already in those cities and the frequency allocations that would be allowed in those cities. In other words, what parts of the radio spectrum would carriers be allowed to use? Because 5G technology doesn't work across the entire radio spectrum. There are specific bands, frequency bands, that 5G is focused on. And it also accounted for differences in connectivity strength and geography. So the simulation focused on what Qualcomm considered to be a reasonable expectation of a 5G network rollout in the short term. So we're talking like, they were saying, well, a year from now, assuming we roll these, these uh, systems out, here's what we could expect at the end of that year. So with all of that said, Qualcomm found that the Frankfurt simulation saw an increase from 56 megabits per second on a 4G network to 490 megabits per second for 5G, which is a big jump, but it's lagging behind some of the more advanced LTE 4G systems that are deploying today in other parts of the world. So in other words, we already have 4G systems that deliver data at that rate or even higher. So you say you could say, yes, the 5G in Frankfurt would be an improvement, but it's still lagging behind other 4G tech. The San Francisco simulation saw browsing speed go from 71 megabits per second on 4G to 1.4 gigabits per second for 5G. So it saw an even greater increase on data transfer rates. In the simulation, median 5G users could watch streaming video at 8K resolution running at 120 frames per second, which is pretty darn impressive. But just to get a bigger picture of everything, while all this is going on, while we're seeing this 5G rollout happening, we're also seeing the 4G networks continue to get enhancements. Qualcomm is rolling out the X24 modem, which is going to be in several smartphones in 2019. That is a 4G technology, but it has the ability to support data transfer rates of up to 2 gigabits per second. Now, keep in mind, the simulation for 5G maxed out at 1.4 gigabits per second. So this older 4G technology would have an even better data transfer rate, at least in an ideal implementation. Now, in the real world, we're probably not going to see anyone actually experience that kind of speed. But at least in theory, the devices could support them. This is another example of how the late phase for one generation of wireless communication can sometimes outperform the early phase of the succeeding generation. 
Now, over time, the 5G system will leave 4G in the dust. It's not uncommon to see predictions of data transfer rates hitting 10 gigabits per second or faster, which is hard for me to imagine, but that's always the case early on before these technologies become part of our daily lives. And besides, we might never actually see our own experience match that predicted result. But if we do, what would that mean? Well, at 10 gigabits per second, you could download a full 4K definition feature-length film in about 25 seconds. I'm not talking about streaming. I'm talking about downloading. Yowza. The second big feature of 5G is a reduction in response time, or reduction in latency. Latency refers to the lag you experience between when you activate something and when that something actually happens. In video games, we would say something like the lag between pushing a jump button and having Mario actually jump is latency. In the Qualcomm San Francisco simulation I mentioned earlier, the company observed a response time that was 23 times faster than the median 4G experience, which means latency would be reduced dramatically. That means 5G could become the technology we rely upon for time-critical applications. So, for example, autonomous cars that might rely at least in part on a networked system could run on 5G. When the information you're requesting is needed to operate a vehicle that's driving at driving speed in traffic, latency is something you really have to eliminate as quickly as you possibly can. Now, I don't expect we're going to see driverless cars switch entirely to some sort of cloud-based operating system where you have a centralized data center that's making all the decisions for all the cars that are on the road. But I do imagine the driverless cars of the future will balance onboard systems that process information right there inside the car itself with support systems that live in the cloud. So we've got better data transfer rates and we've got faster response times as the first two big features of 5G. The third one is that the 5G systems will be able to handle many more devices connected to an individual system at the same time. And this is absolutely necessary as the Internet of Things trends shows no sign of slowing down. I'll explain more in just a second, but first let's take another quick break. It's pretty hard to get a reckoning on the number of devices that are connected to the Internet, but it's a lot. According to Statista, by the end of 2018, there were 23.14 billion Internet of Things devices connected to the network of networks in some fashion. That same site estimates that by 2025, there will be more than 75 billion IoT gadgets connected to the Internet. But that's just one estimation, and other sources have different numbers. There is something that's in common with all those different numbers. They're all real, real big. So they may not all specifically agree on how many billion devices are connected to the internet, but they all agree that it is many billion and it's just going to get bigger. To support all those devices, providers have to build out network capacity. Otherwise, you would find it impossible to use your phone because there are too many doorbells, cameras, thermostats, and refrigerators connected to the networks. Actually, to be fair, that's a bit of an oversimplification because of the way we tend to connect devices to the internet through stuff like local area networks and routers, and it ignores stuff like the specific frequency bands that the devices and systems are using, but the point is pretty valid. You get to a point where 
networks, whether they are local or wide area or the internet itself, end up getting congested. Now, you've likely heard about Verizon or AT&T talking up some of their technologies as 5G, but 5G as a fully mature technology has not really rolled out yet, as I'm recording this podcast in February 2019, and we're probably not going to see any real serious widespread deployment until 2020. There'll be some in 2019, some pilot programs, but as far as national coverage, we may be looking at 2020, maybe 2021. Even then, it's going to be a gradual rollout, and it's going to take time to reach a lot of different service areas. Dense urban environments will get it first, most likely, but the further out you are from one of those, the longer it may take before you get this coverage. So it's going to be a few years before most of us can regularly take advantage of 5G. And on top of that, it's going to take another few years for developers to create the apps and services that will give value to the 5G technology. I say this pretty confidently because that's how it's unrolled in previous generations. When 4G came out in 2010, it took about three years for services like video calls to really mature and take advantage of 4G technology, which makes sense. You know, it takes a few years for developers to figure out how they can best leverage the platform. So what is going on with these 5G claims from AT&T and Verizon? Well, it's largely marketing speak, specifically more so with AT&T than Verizon, but I'll explain. Uh, I think as this episode is making clear, the whole wireless generation thing is super confusing to the average person. Uh, on the one hand, these companies are offering up technologies and services that push beyond the median experience of 4G on their networks. On the other hand, they're doing so with technologies that are not completely 5G. So you can think of it as saying that the tech gives users access to 5G speeds, but isn't actually fully 5G itself. So let's start with AT&T. The company is marketing some of its advanced 4G phones as 5GE, and the E stands for evolution. But these 5GE phones won't actually support 5G wireless communication, and that's what has some folks upset. The implication is that these phones will run on frequencies and networks that enable really strong data transfer rates. But that's not the same thing as running on actual 5G technology. Instead, 5GE is really LTE advanced. It is capable of supporting data transfer speeds of around 40 megabits per second. To be fair to AT&T, this isn't an unprecedented marketing move. T-Mobile did the same thing when it rolled out an HSPA Plus technology. This was a 3G technology that it rolled out. But it was much faster than the older 3G technology T-Mobile had previously deployed. So the company decided to market it as 4G, even though the technical specification meant it was still 3G. AT&T, by the way, back in those days, criticized T-Mobile for doing this and saying that they made things less transparent and less understandable to customers. But then AT&T did the same thing with its own HSPA Plus network and said that that was also 4G, so yay. And people wonder why these topics are so difficult to explain. Even without this marketing misinformation, it's hard to talk about this stuff. Verizon, by the way, their 5G offering isn't for phones. It's instead for home networks. So this is a home network solution instead of getting, say, fiber to your house or 
copper. In many cases, I'm still running on copper. I don't have fiber optics at my house yet. Verizon's 5G offering is also not true 5G, but it's a lot closer to it than AT&T is. It's using some of the technologies that are part of the 5G approach. So it has lower latency, it has pretty good data transfer rates, but it does not use the 5G in our communications standard. Instead, it relies upon a communication standard that Verizon itself made called 5GTF. Eventually, Verizon plans to switch over to the industry agreed upon, upon standard of NR. That's going to require Verizon to actually switch out physical uh, equipment at different stations around its service area. So it's going to be a big investment on the part of the company. So I guess Verizon was weighing decisions. Does it go forward rolling out this sort of temporary patch knowing that it's going to have to undo that work in the future to upgrade to NR uh, standards? Uh, or does it wait and try to just move with the industry to adopt NR? The benefit of going forward is that you get an early uh, hit at those consumers who want to have those 5G features as soon as they possibly can. But the danger is you're going to have to spend a lot of money to change out all that equipment. Verizon, for its part, has said they're not going to pass those costs down to customers. They're not going to see a big bump in their subscription uh, fees in order for Verizon to go in and change out all this equipment once it's once the company has decided that the NR standard is established enough for them to make this change. There's also no guarantee of when that'll happen. So a lot of unanswered questions still. All right. Well, I put it off as long as I possibly could, but it is time to talk about what actually will make 5G work. I'm going to do this from a very, very high level. Bird's eye view is probably too low of an altitude. Let's say a satellite view of the technology. So like earlier generations of cellular technology, 5G networks have cell sites that cover a territory. The territory is divided up into sectors. Moving through sectors needs to be seamless for the end user. So for me and you, whenever we're moving around, we want to make sure that we don't notice when we pass from one sector to the next. If I'm on a phone call with you, and I happen to be riding in the back of a car, and I'm not really concerned with how irritating it might be for me to be on a phone conversation while someone else is driving, I'm chatting with you. I don't want there to be any interruption in our phone call as the car travels from one side of a city to the other. And while it's doing that, it's going to be passing through these sectors. This was sort of the basis of the cellular technology approach, this idea that there needs to be this, this handshake in between cell towers that allows the seamless transition of a call from one tower to the next. And it's a pretty complicated technology. I've talked about it in previous episodes of Tech Stuff. So we're not going to go into more detail. But just to say that 5G is built on that same sort of foundation, this idea of cells that represent a certain area of service and that those cells can hand off service to neighboring cells as a person is moving through the different sectors. So uh, an important part of the technology. The cell sites have to connect to a network backbone. They, they themselves aren't just magical conversation, you know, telecommunications points. They have to connect to a, a larger communications network. Uh, that connection can be wired or it can be wireless. 
5G will use wider bandwidths of frequencies than 4G did. But the encoding for data across the 5G networks is similar to that of 4G. It's called OFDM, but there's really no need for us to get into that too deeply. It gets way too technical, and it becomes nearly impossible to talk about without visual aids. It's just important to remember, this is the methodology by which 5G will convert data into signals and then from signals back into data. I know that signals are kind of a kind of data, but you don't understand what I mean. It's for the transmission of that data. 5G is going to run on two bands of frequencies that are on either side of 6 gigahertz. Um, by other, either side, I mean significantly on either side of 6 gigahertz. 6 gigahertz is kind of the dividing line between them. So a hertz is one wave cycle per second. Uh, so if you have a, a wave that's going at one hertz, it means it takes a full second for one wavelength to pass through a given point. You've identified a point, you're measuring how many uh, radio waves pass that point in one second. You count one, that's one hertz. Six gigahertz would be a frequency in which six billion wave cycles pass a given point every second. The low frequency networks will operate within existing Wi-Fi and cellular bands. So at that wavelength, signals can travel the same distance as what we use today. The nice thing about that means you don't have to build out a ton of new cells to get the same coverage. You could actually add equipment to existing cell towers to support 5G because you can transmit just as far as you could with the 4G uh, methodology. However, those frequencies aren't able to carry quite as much data on them as the high frequencies ones can. So you won't get crazy fast uh, or a crazy huge data transfer rates. Uh, they would still probably be better than 4G, but not the enormous, incredible potential ones we've heard about. But we would still probably see data transfer rates that are 25 to 50% better than LTE. However, the high-frequency 5G tech is a different story. It will rely on millimeter wave frequencies around the 28 and 39 gigahertz bands because that's where there's a whole lot of space for big communications channels that can carry huge amounts of data very quickly. These radio waves can't travel as far with enough power to be reli as reliable as the lower-frequency variant can. So, in other words, they don't have as great a range of transmission, which means companies would have to probably build out a lot more 5G cells to make their network have enough coverage. On the flip side, these cells wouldn't have to be nearly as powerful as the cell towers we rely upon today. They could actually require much less power to operate. So instead of using a few high-powered cellular antenna towers to cover a given region, you would have a whole bunch of low-power, high-frequency transmitters. For some regions, like densely populated urban areas, many of the carriers out there have already built out the infrastructure that could support this type of 5G. There are already these additional cell towers that could just have 5G tacked onto them, and the infrastructure is good to go. However, in other areas, like in suburbs, once you move out of these densely populated areas, it can get harder to get the permission necessary to build out the infrastructure. There are a lot of communities that don't want to have these, these transmission towers erected in their community. It's sort of that 
not in my backyard, the NIMBY principle. I don't want that to be on the top of this building. It's too close to my house, that kind of thing. So this isn't a technical challenge. This is a social or political challenge that companies are going to have to overcome to have a good 5G deployment if they want to use these high frequencies. Now, as I record this, AT&T is prepping its uh, true 5G rollout in a few select cities, and it will be of modest size and will likely only see a few phones in 2019 that actually support 5G technology. But at least we could say those phones and services will be true 5G rather than 4G that happens to be marketed as if it were 5G. And 5G could really transform how we get internet at home. If carriers can get permission to build out those 5G networks and provide coverage, they can run fiber to specific cell sites, to those cell towers. They could connect those by fiber to the network backbone. And then they could use wireless transmissions to deliver internet service to customer homes. So there's no need to run fiber out to the actual customer homes. This cuts way down on cost uh, it, it also speeds things up significantly. You don't have to dig up the ground and bury cables and all that kind of stuff and disrupt traffic. It could be a much faster deployment, assuming that the carriers get that permission to erect the, the uh, cell towers or to add the technology to existing cell towers. So you could get true broadband speeds delivered wirelessly to your home. You wouldn't have to have some technician come out and hook up cable. You would just get a wireless modem from your carrier. The other nice thing about this is that if it does in fact happen, it should mean that more people in the United States in particular will get more choices for their broadband provider. Right now, a lot of people, myself included, if you want true broadband speeds, if you want the faster speeds in your area, you're limited to one provider. There's not really a choice there. So at my house, there's one provider that can deliver the speeds I want to my house. The next closest one is 75% slower than the one I have. So that's not really acceptable to me. And there's not a lot of incentive for the other carriers to spend the huge amount of money it would take to roll fiber out to my house and compete with the one provider that is delivering that kind of service. By going the wireless route, you've reduced the cost of deployment significantly. And in theory, you could have a lot more competition in those same areas. And competition is fantastic. We want competition because when there's competition, the consumer benefits. Companies will try to be competitive in pricing and features, and you can pick whichever package best suits your needs instead of just being stuck with whatever happens to be available in your area. This is my dream <laughs> that we get to that, that future. I'm hoping that that actually happens. Now, I would advise folks to hold off on jumping onto the 5G bandwagon for a little bit. The deployment is going to take some time and initial results might be a little disappointing at first. Uh, I suspect it's going to be 2020 or maybe even 2021 before we start seeing any really compelling implementations of 5G. Now, I say that, but I also imagine I'll probably ignore my own advice and jump into the 5G world earlier rather than later. So what the heck do I know? But I know that at, at least for the first year, I'll likely be somewhat disappointed. 
which is crazy because I already know this going into it. Why would I be disappointed if I know it's already going to happen? Because I'm an irrational human being. I think this is a good time to wrap up. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, why don't you send me a message? The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or hop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find an archive of all of our episodes there. You'll also find links to find us on social media like Twitter and Facebook. And you'll find a link to our store. That's over at tpublic.com slash techstuff where every purchase you make in our store goes to help the show. And we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 